0: And thanks for listening. Well, my name is Harrison Ford. I'm one of the pastors here. And once again, welcome to City Church. Great to be here with all of y'all. Let me ask you this um, Have you ever been to a meal that became more than a meal? That might sound a bit esoteric, so let me give an example. While Brittany and I were in seminary in Charlotte, a church around there, uh, held a conference on faith and writing. And they had a bunch of really incredible writers there, one of, who, one of whom was uh, our queen, Sandra McCracken. <laughs> but the best part was that it ended with a dinner party. A, a really better state, it ended, it was, it was more like a feast. Uh, they had this guy named Dan the Pigman, <laughs> who, um, despite the name, is this really accomplished chef. And he planned out this incredible, lavish, multi-course meal. And while that was going on, they had uh, this guy uh, playing music who was a, an expert in the blues tradition of South Carolina, which now you know that they have that. Uh, and this was also, it was held in this really old, kind of picturesque building, and there were twinkle lights strung up everywhere. And I'm so basic <laughs> that you could put twinkle lights on a burned-down building, and I'd be like... oh oh my gosh, y'all, it's so cute, it's so cute. So at one point, while this was going on, I leaned over to Brittany and I was like, I think this is what heaven's going to be like. And I was joking, but I wasn't really joking. The meal had somehow transcended itself. It had become more than a meal. It uh, had become like a thin place if you know where that that term is, a place where it seems like the veil between heaven and earth has been pulled back just a little bit. And I'm sure that you've had meals like this. Maybe it was your wedding reception, sharing a meal with so many many friends and family on such a monumental occasion. Maybe it was sharing a meal with old friends that you hadn't seen in, in a decade, and you all get together, and it just feels incredible. Or maybe it was eating, sim, eating a, a simple sandwich at the top of a mountain after you had climbed it just to catch this incredible vista. There are so many times in which a meal can become more than a meal, in which they can seem to point beyond themselves to a transcendent reality. And what I want to suggest is that this isn't just a product of sentimentality or good vibes, but rather meals are supposed to do this. Meals are supposed to point beyond themselves. In the Bible, uh, when God wants to get across the fullness of his redemption, he often uses the imagery of a feast, like we read about earlier, like Blake read for us from Isaiah 25. And because of that, God often uses earthly meals as signposts pointing to that heavenly banquet and offering an earthly foretaste of it. So, this afternoon, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about that heavenly banquet and the importance of it. And I want to specifically talk about how it affects the way that we live this side of heaven. So, if you would, please turn with me to Luke 14. We're going to look at uh, verses 15 to 24. You can find them certainly in your Bible, but also in the worship guide. Luke 14, verses 15 to 24. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the, and at the, time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for now everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things back to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. Go out to the highway. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this afternoon, I want us to consider three things. First, redemption culminates in a feast. Second, why some will miss out on that feast. And third, how you can make sure you're at that feast. So, first, redemption culminates in a feast. Let's say that you get invited to a dinner party. Whether you'd uh, be willing to admit it or not, after you get the invitation, what all of us do is we start to kind of do a list of pros and cons to determine whether or not it's worth us RSVPing yes or no. You know, we start to ask the question, uh, who's going to be there? What kind of food's going to be served? Do I need to bring food? How do I need to dress up? How long will I be there? So we take all this data, and then we do uh, kind of some social calculus to determine whether or not it's worth us going. And, you know, it's not just for dinner parties that we do this. We do this kind of cost-benefit analysis for so many things in our life, throughout our day, uh, even our faith. And Jesus, in fact, tells us that we're supposed to do that. In the passage that immediately follows this, which Eric is going to preach on next week, Jesus says that the cost of following him is extremely high. So high that it could be likened to taking up your cross, which is a kind of death to self, and renouncing all that you have. So, he says, you need to count the cost. Is it worth it to follow me? He invites that question. But the question we have to ask then is, what benefit could possibly outweigh that kind of cost what could possibly make it worth following jesus if that's what he says it takes to follow him well i don't think it's coincidental that before jesus talks about the high cost of following him he sets out the matchless benefit of following him And he does that in our text today by giving this parable that alludes to the heavenly banquet. This is a feast that's going to mark the return of Christ and the consummation of his redemptive work. And I actually want us to go back to the passage that Blake read for us earlier from Isaiah 25. Listen again to how this heavenly banquet is described. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all the peoples, the veil that's spread over all the nations. He'll swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he'll take away from all the earth. Sound familiar? Well, if you go towards the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the last book, one of the last chapters, chapter 21, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God with his, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Now remember, Revelation is a vision uh, about the end of the age when Christ returns and uh, forever does away. He finally defeats Satan and forever he does away with um, evil. And so what this callback is telling us is that Isaiah isn't just using real fanciful imagery uh, when he's talking about this uh, heavenly banquet But what Revelation is telling us is that this is actually a description of the future that awaits all of us who are in Christ, all of God's people. Now, why have I gone on this kind of excursus about the heavenly banquet? It's because I think that we often have so truncated, so small a view of why we should follow Jesus, of the benefits of following him. You know, for some of us, it's just something we do out of force of habit or tradition. Well, I, I grew up a Christian, and it's just, I don't know, I, I go to church on Sundays. For some of us, uh, it, we do it because it's what our friends do. We have community here. For some of us, we do it because it provides a, a sense of morality, a, or a system of morality, or, or a sense of peace, or a sense of kind of uh, spiritualism. And all of that is fine, and all of that's good to extract from Christianity. But yet, again, remember how God describes his redemption, the benefits of knowing Christ. He describes it in such massive, cosmic terms. The end of death and evil and pain, the beginning of an everlasting, unshakable peace, joy, and fullness that all comes from living quorum Deo, before the very presence of God himself. And if that's true, if that's the benefit of following Jesus, then it means that it will always outweigh the cost. The cost can't be high enough, in fact, to match that benefit. And so what that means is that nothing should come between us and following Jesus. Nothing should prevent us from being at that heavenly banquet. But that brings us to our second point, the problem, why some will miss out on that feast. You see, the problem that really animates this parable is that the guest the host had initially invited, they RSVP'd, yes, in, in, in this ancient time, two invitations went out to a feast. One that kind of got the initial RSVP, and then another that went out when the banquet was ready, when uh, a servant would go and say, all right, now it's time to come. Well, when the servant came out, the people who had initially said they were going to be there ended up saying, ugh, actually, I can't make it. And they give excuses. And Jesus gives three examples of these excuses here. And at first glance, these excuses have a kind of veneer of acceptability about them. But when you actually start to pay attention to what they're saying, they don't really hold up to scrutiny. One man says that he bought land and he has to go see it. Well, you you don't really buy land without seeing it first. And then even if that's the case, even if he did buy it sight unseen, the land's going to be there after the banquet. It's not going anywhere. And the same logic is true for the guy with the oxen. Again, you're probably not going to buy 15 head of oxen, which is a lot of, I assume, is a lot of oxen. I don't deal with oxen much. Um, (laughs) Some people have chickens in the city. Well, maybe you could have oxen. Um, You wouldn't buy them without testing them out first. And again, even if you did, they would still be there after the feast is over. So the excuses just don't hold up. And then you get to this guy who says that he can't come because he's married. Um, And I'm sure that our single friends in the room are looking and saying, oh, I've heard that excuse before. In Jesus' time, there was a law that uh, you were exempted from military service for your first year of marriage. But again, this guy's not being conscripted. He's being invited to a banquet. The excuse doesn't hold up. These excuses, they're lame. I'd suggest they're comical even. I kind of imagine that while Jesus was telling this parable, the the dinner guest that he was with would have started laughing. But Jesus is making a deadly serious point. We will be tempted to prioritize the things of this life over Jesus, and if we do that, we're going to miss out on the heavenly banquet. You know, a book recently came out that shows how this is playing out in our day. It's called The Great Dechurching and its authors um, say that we're in the midst of the most extensive shift in the american religious landscape that's happened in our recorded history over the past 25 years 15 percent of americans roughly 40 million people have stopped attending church now that's a big number it may be a little bit of a shock but i think that even more shocking is the reason why people have stopped uh, attending church you know we would probably think if someone stopped going to church, it's for highly principled reasons. Maybe they've left because of things like abuse or toxic leadership, or they disagree with uh, certain teachings on maybe uh, gender or sexuality. And the data that the authors analyze show that that certainly does account for a part of the people who've dechurched, but it's actually the minority. The vast majority of of people who've de-churched have done so for far more mundane reasons. Maybe they just fell out of the habit because they stopped going to church during COVID and they never really got back into it. Maybe they moved to a new city and just never got plugged in with the community of a church, so they stopped going. Maybe um, they have kids and the struggle of getting out on a Sunday is just too overwhelming, so they stopped going. Maybe they have a job that is so burdensome, it's so stressful during the week that they'd rather just have time to themselves on Sundays. They're so um, zapped, they have so little margin that they can't give uh, to the church. And here's the thing in most of these cases, in most of these scenarios, people did not expect that they were going to de church, it just kind of happened. And I get this. Uh, This happened to me when I studied abroad in college. I was a devout believer. I was super involved in my campus ministry at the time. Um, Then I got to Russia where I was studying abroad, and I had a hard time finding a Protestant church that had an English service, which is like one of these lame (laughs) excuses because I was there to learn Russian. (laughs) And so I just didn't go to church. I mean effectively i de-churched for about four to five months and if i'd stayed there longer i think that trend would have continued because that momentum would have been hard to turn around so friends we need to pay attention to jesus's warning here you know he gives three examples of possessions and work and relationships that end up taking priority over him and prevent these people from attending the heavenly banquet I think we would be foolish to presume that this could not happen to us. And this brings us to the final point, though. How to make sure that you're at that feast. So, now, on one hand, this parable should um, move us to a kind of introspection, a kind of evaluation of our faith. Have we, like the Pharisees, RSVP'd yes, yes, but then functionally said no to Christ because we put things over him in priority. But on the other hand, this parable should give us comfort and assurance, especially when we see how Jesus portrays the -the over-the-top grace of God. Through his description of the host, we learn that God refuses to let this uh, feast happen until we're there. He refuses to let the party go on without us. He's so insistent, in fact, that we be at this feast that he chases us into the highways and the hedges and compels us to come in. And he doesn't make us spiffy ourselves up, put on our formal wear before we come into the party, but no, he says, come as you are. Come poor, broken, crippled, blind, and lame. And so given that, I want to suggest three things that can help us make sure that we're going to be at that feast. First is this, you have to constantly remind yourself that God's heavenly feast is better than anything that you can have at this side of heaven. You know, the people who ended up at the banquet, the poor, the, poor, the blind, the lame, etc., these are people who didn't have much. They didn't really have anything, and so it was easy for them to say yes to this because it was so lavish a gift. Compared to their life, they would say, yes, I'm going to come to this banquet. And friends, there's nothing in our life that can compare to this banquet either. I mean, again, think about it. The absence of pain, death, and evil, the eternal presence of joy, peace, and fullness, life with God forever, nothing can compare to that in this life. And if you think that the benefits of Christ are smaller than that, are less than that, you're always going to be at risk of prioritizing other things over him. And this is why I keep emphasizing the church so much. Now look, let's be clear. Church attendance, being a part of the life of the church, that doesn't save you. That doesn't, isn't a ticket into the uh, heavenly feast. But God has given us the church as the context in which we persevere in the Christian faith. It's the church that's constantly reminding us that the heavenly feast is better than anything that we could have. That Christ is worth it. That the benefits of knowing him and following him outweigh the cost. The church is where we're constantly learning that and being encouraged in that. I mean, consider our worship service. At the heart of it is communion. A meal that is more than a meal. A meal that gives us a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. And says, if you think this is good, boy, you've got something coming. Second, to make sure that you're at this heavenly feast, you have to own that you're only going to be there by the grace of God. You're only going to be there by the grace of God. You see, the Pharisees presumed that they would be at the heavenly banquet um, because of their pedigree, because of their social standing, because of their religious devotion. They thought that, that was, um, they were going to get in because they were the right kind of people that did the right kind of things. But notice in the parable who gets in. It's the people who have nothing to offer. In a sense, it's the wrong kind of people who get into what you would expect to be a, a lavish, fancy banquet. These are the people whose only claim to entrance is that they had been invited by the host. The Pharisees presumed upon themselves as being enough to get in, but the people that actually got in are the people who presumed on the grace of the host. Friends, if we're going to be at that heavenly banquet, we have to presume upon the grace of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Third, if we're going to be at that heavenly banquet, we have to accept Christ's invitation by saying no to anything that would keep us away from the banquet. You know, what's tragically comic (laughs) about this parable is that the people who were initially invited, all they had to do to get to this uh, feast was to come. They had already said they were going to be there. All they had to do was come. It's such an incredibly low barrier to entry. Nothing more, nothing less. Simply come. And friends, the same is true for us. Jesus has invited you to the heavenly feast, all you have to do is simply come. But to come, it means that you're going to have to say no to the other things that are going to vie for your attention, your worship, and your loves. You know, when I was doing campus ministry at VCU, um, I would also have, I would often have students come to me who were stressed out and burnout, and. Oftentimes, the reason for that is because they had said yes to too many things. Good things, in fact. You know, when you're on a college campus, there's so many things that you could say yes to. But if you say yes to all of them, you're just gonna, your, your um, bandwidth is going to be totally taken up. You're going to be f- spent. And you end up stressed out and burnout. out. So what I told these students is that they had to not be afraid to say no to things. Because, in fact... When they said no to something, it gave them a stronger and more resolute yes to the things that really mattered. Well, friends, this applies to us. If we're going to reply yes to Christ's invitation to this heavenly banquet, we have to say no to the things that would try and keep us from it. We have to say no to the job that demands so much of us during the week that we have nothing left to give to anything else we have to say no to the social commitments that keep us from coming to church we have to say no to ideologies that plainly contradict scripture we have to say no to the idols that would try and split our heart between christ and between them to say yes to christ we have to say no to so many things Think about it. What was the difference between the people who were invited and didn't come and the people who ended up coming to the feast? Well, the first group, they had a lot of things. They had work, they had possessions, they had relationships. But they failed to say no to those things in order to say yes to to the invitation to the feast. But what about that second group? The The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Well, because they had very little, it was easy for them to say yes. Friends, you and I, generally speaking, are a lot like that first group. We have so much. I hope you realize, I forget it so often, I hope you realize how much privilege we have relative to so many other people in the world, the kind of all the things that we have. And because of that, it means that it's gonna, we're going to have a lot of things that we have to say no to because those things would try and keep us from Christ because they vie for our hearts. You know, one of the themes in the great de is that um, modern life is not conducive to kingdom life. And in many ways, modern life works against kingdom life. And so, friends, we all live here in this world. We live in the modern life that's not uh, conducive to kingdom life. So it means that much of life is going to feel like a battle. It feels like we're going to have to say no to a lot of things. But in those moments where it feels so hard to say no, we have to remember what we're saying yes to. We have to remember the glory and the fullness of the heavenly banquet. We need to have Isaiah 25 and Revelation 21 like written out and put on our mirrors. We need to wake up in the morning and say this is what I'm living towards. The absence of evil and pain and death and the presence of joy and fullness and love eternal. Now in conclusion I want to make a quick point of application. Last week Eric talked about how we want to be a, a church that throws good parties. That's been something that's been a part of our church's kind of Cultural DNA since the very beginning. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you'll probably realize that those parties tend to revolve around food. Why is this? Well, it's because we believe that when meals are characterized and driven by the gospel, that's what Eric talked about last week about parties, so go listen to that sermon if you weren't here. We believe that when meals are characterized and driven by the gospel, they become more than just a meal because they point beyond themselves to the transcendent reality of that heavenly banquet that we've been invited to. They give us a foretaste of that banquet. They help us fix our eyes on the invitation of Christ who is, the ho- who is our host. Um, and here's why I mention this. In the great Dechurching, one of the most haunting statistics is that of the people who have de-churched, 51% say that they would come to church again if someone would invite them. 51%. Friends, we are all here today. We will all be at the heavenly banquet at the end of the age because Jesus wasn't content to start the feast without us. He sent his church throughout its history to... In, to compel us to come out into the highways and hedges and to bring us in. And that is the very same commission that he's giving you today. Go out and invite people in. There are so many people in our lives who would come, not only to the church, but who would come to this heavenly banquet if only we would invite them and ask them to come with us. And I think one of the most powerful ways that you can do that is through meals. Invite someone over for dinner, someone part of that 51%. Invite someone over for dinner, but before you do it, pray and ask God that he would make that meal more than a meal. That it would be a meal that creates in you and in them an insatiable hunger for the heavenly banquet. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've promised us this banquet. That for all of those who are united to you, there is such a good thing coming. Father, we admit it is hard to say no to the invitations of the world that would seek to keep us from this heavenly banquet, to keep us from you. It's so hard to say no to that. But Father, we know that you've given us your Holy Spirit, and so we pray that you would strengthen us uh, to be able to do that. Would you strengthen us most of all by revealing to us uh, the beauty of Christ, who is our hope? Would you keep our eyes transfixed upon him, such that we couldn't imagine getting to the end of life and not being at that heavenly table? We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.